For some reason, the final or last words of people before they die are intriguing to us. Sometimes they say something funny, other times they say something profound. And I think it's important to us because we think it speaks to what is uppermost on their minds, that is what they want us to remember during their final moments. You can actually go online and do a search for famous last words and find all kinds of these. For example, Marie Antoinette, the wife of King Louis XIV, whose little village that she had built so that she could live like a peasant behind the castle of Versailles, something Tracy and I visited this past spring. Her famous last words were, pardon me, sir. She accidentally stepped on the foot of her executioner on the way to her death. And so the last thing she said was an apology to the man who was about to take off her head. Sir Winston Churchill, one of the greatest wartime heroes in history, chose as his last words, I'm bored with it all. I suppose leading a nation through war and being victorious throughout all of those troubling times had left him at the age of 90 and failing health, bored with life. But last words are not just for the dying. The idea comes into play in other spheres of life as well. In fact, some of you, your favorite time in the sermon is when I say something like, in closing, or finally, which gives you the clue that I am almost at my last words. But seriously speaking, even in sermons or speeches or plays, what is said at the end is usually a summation to drive home the point of what is important from that event. That is the thing that we want to leave in the minds of our listeners as they leave. Now, we are not yet at the last words of Jesus. You know that those will take place on the cross. In fact, we've done a series on that, the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. In order to get all seven, you have to use all four Gospels because none of the Gospels contain all of them. So that is not what I'm talking about this morning. But you will recall that last Sunday we finished with verse 34, and in verse 34 we read these words, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The dialogue between Jesus and the religious leaders is coming to an end. But it is not just that this question and answer is over with. We are actually coming to the end of Jesus' public ministry. It's not His last words. Again, those are on the cross. It's not even His last teaching because He still is going to teach privately among His disciples. But the part we've come to this morning is the closing comments of Jesus' public ministry among the crowds. So what will he choose as his last words to the crowd? What does Jesus want them to remember as they've been listening and following and now they will walk away? That is what we're going to look at this morning as we talk about closing comments. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. 
David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, the poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, as you can see, there are three sections to this particular part of Scripture that I've selected for our text today, and therefore I am going to have three points of the sermon, striving to summarize each of these sections with a particular statement or even a command. And the first is this, we are to believe the logic. Jesus is still in the synagogue, though as we've acknowledged, the questions from the religious leaders have now ceased. They have tried to entrap him repeatedly, asking him questions that they think are going to be difficult to answer, and in his answer, he is going to offend at least a part of the audience. But Jesus, of course, has not fallen prey to their traps. He has prevailed over all of his challengers. He has won the debate. And now it is his turn to set the agenda. It is his turn to pose the question. After a long day of being asked questions, he's going to turn it around. Or as someone said, after a long day of questions comes the question of the day. He is now going to ask what is going to be a difficult question for them to answer. The question begins by acknowledging a commonly held belief. This belief was held not only by the scribes and the other religious leaders, but by a majority of the Jews. Christ, which again is not the last name of Jesus, it's a title. It is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament Messiah, both of which mean anointed one. And this anointed one is going to be the son of David. That was the the commonly held belief. The Bible has a long and rich history of this doctrine, dating all the way back to where God gave them a promise that there would always be a descendant from David's line on the throne, and yet Israel's monarchy has ceased to exist. It went the way of history in 586 B.C., and so there has been no son of David on the throne, but they have been looking for one. They are looking for the Christ or the Messiah to come. And so Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, which is the most frequently, old, most frequently quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. And he acknowledges that David is the author of that particular psalm. And yet, he is also writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Look at that again and and see this dichotomy in this introduction. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, that's his authorship, 
but he's writing in the Holy Spirit. In that brief introduction, Jesus summarizes for us our doctrine of the inspiration of the Scriptures. It is written by men. In fact, some will try to criticize what we believe, and they will say the Bible's just written by men. And in one sense, it is written by men. But in another sense, it's not just written by men. It is written by men who are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So in that introductory phrase, Jesus brings together the Davidic authorship of Psalm 110 and the divine authorship as well. Now the, gift, the gist of this quote is that David called the Christ his Lord. This is going to be his physical descendant, and yet he called him Lord. So there appears to be a contradiction. How can David call one of his physical descendants Lord? No, no father of that time would do that. Nobody would call his grandson or his great-grandson a lord. It was simply not done in that time. And so there's a seeming contradiction. And you know there are other things like this in the Bible where the Bible proclaims two truths that seem to be hard, if not impossible, to reconcile. And that is the case here. How can the Christ be the son of David while at the same time David calls him Lord? Well, Psalm 110 was originally a coronation hymn. That, it that is, it was a song that was sung or chanted or recited as the people would inaugurate a new king. So whether it was Judah or Israel, when they had a time in their life when a new king was going to come to the throne, as they made their way to the place where this would happen, they would chant a psalm like Psalm 110. And therefore, the first Lord refers to God the Father, and the second Lord refers to the King. Now again, because the monarchy is no more, this psalm and others like it began to be interpreted messianically. That is, they began to interpret the song not to refer to a new king, but to refer to the king who was going to come, the Messiah or the Christ. And if you look closely or you have to go back to the Psalms, there are actually two words here. The first Lord is the word Yahweh. That is a word that is always used for God the Father. It is the divine name of God that was revered by the Jews. But the second term that is translated Lord is a different word. This is the word Adonai, which is sometimes translated as referring to God, and sometimes it refers to people. In fact, some of your Bibles might give you a hint that this is a different word. Both of them are obviously translated Lord in the New Testament. But some of your Bibles might capitalize the first Lord to show that it is the word Yahweh and not capitalize the second Lord so that you see there is a distinction. So the question then becomes, how can David call Christ the Lord while at the same time he is his son? Again, all agreed. This is the commonly held belief. All agreed that the Messiah would come from the line of David and thus be a son of David. But Jesus is making the case that David believed more than that. David believed that, but he believed more than that because he calls the Christ Lord. David's words make no sense if the Messiah is merely a human being. So the point being made here is that he is indeed the son of David, but he is more than that. He is also the son of God. Now, you may remember early on in our study of Mark, we kept coming across these odd statements where Jesus would tell someone not to say anything, 
We're so conditioned that we're supposed to tell everybody about Jesus, it strikes us as odd that in part of the Gospels, Jesus says, don't tell people what you've just said. Don't tell people what I've just taught you. I don't want them to know that I'm the Christ. And we call that the messianic secret. That is, early on in the ministry, there were so many misconceptions about what kind of Messiah Jesus was going to be that rather than confuse people more, he said, just don't tell them. Well, those days are now over. Jesus is now coming clean with who he is. He is declaring in the temple in Jerusalem that he is indeed the Christ that they have been looking for, not just the son of David, but the son of God. And it's very similar to what we saw early on, this time up north in Caesarea Philippi. You remember that that pivotal point in the ministry of Jesus and his disciples? He looked at them and he said, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they gave him multiple answers, prophets, Elijah. And then he says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, the spokesperson for the group, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, that is well said, Peter. That's been revealed to you by God the Father. And now in Jerusalem, Jesus is in essence saying the exact same thing. He is declaring himself to the crowd to be the Christ. And they hear him gladly, which is a bit strange since Mark has often viewed the crowds as being an obstacle in the ministry of Jesus. Sometimes they prevent people from coming to Jesus. Sometimes they take up Jesus' time and energy when he's trying to teach others. But in this case, we are told that the crowds hear him gladly, in all likelihood, because he has silenced the religious leaders, not because they fully understand what he is saying. Now, over the last few weeks, we've dealt with a lot of very important questions. These questions that the religious leaders have asked Jesus have have been boiled down to some of the most fundamental things that we need to understand. But there is no question greater than the question we are dealing with this morning, and that is, who is Jesus? And like the first century, there are an awful lot of misconceptions about the answer to that question. Many people think they know the answer, but they are often mistaken. Jesus is answering that question for us. He is saying, I am not just the son of David, though I am that. He is a physical descendant of David in his line, but he is far more than that. He is the eternal son of God, the Christ, who has come to save his people from their sin, which is something we've already sung about, and that is the very thing that David himself believed. And so we need to believe the logic. David called him Lord. The only way he can call him that is if he is more than the son of David. He is indeed the son of God. And I remind you that this is not merely the words of David. For Jesus says he spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So while he is the son of David, he is more. He is the eternal son of God, which means all of us must respond to that truth. You can respond favorably or negatively. And you say, well, I'm not ready to respond. Well, that is a response. Not responding is a response. So if indeed Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the Christ who has come to save us, it requires a response from all of us. Well, let's move to our second statement in this closing comments of Jesus' public ministry. Secondly, he says, not only believe the logic, but beware the prideful. He is talking, of course, about the scribes. 
We're not sure exactly who he's talking to. He's probably still talking to all of the crowd, which would include the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. And what he says about the scribes could no doubt be a proper tag for these other religious leaders as well. And it is certainly an ongoing problem in religion and evangelical Christianity to this very day. Jesus makes several comments about the actions of the scribes, all of which point to their pride and desire for honor and recognition. They would wear these robes, these outer garments that would fit over the other clothes they were wearing, sort of like perhaps maybe a a shawl that, that a woman would wear in our day, something that goes over everything else. They, they were the priestly garments. They were to be worn in the temple as they performed the duties. The problem was they were not just wearing them in the temple. They were wearing them in the streets. They were wearing them in the marketplaces because they identified, those outer garments identified them as men of prominence, and therefore they wanted everyone to know who they were. You know, we have a word nowadays. It's a word called bling. It speaks of someone who's wearing all of these outer things to draw attention to themselves, all of these flashy garments or accessories. I got news for you. Bling might be a new word, but it's not a new concept. These scribes were doing the same thing in the first century, trying to draw attention to themselves so that they might get the glory. Greetings in the marketplaces is more than just a, a hello or a friendly handshake or wave. It was customary in that day when these men would walk through the marketplace that people would rise in their honor. Only the laborers who were working were exempt from this. Everyone else was fully expected to rise as these men walked through the marketplace. Sort of like we do nowadays in court when the, when the bailiff says that we're all to rise because the judge is entering the courtroom. And you can imagine how heady this would be, where everywhere you went, people are standing in attention in your honor. It goes to your head and makes you prideful. With their prominence, they expected the best seat in the church, which here's a cultural difference, right? What's the best seat in the church? Well, in our day, it's the back row, right? I mean, people come in first, and they get the back row. They put the Bible down in the back row so nobody gets the best seat in the house. That way they can get out quickly and get to lunch. That way they don't have to mess with the common people that are down here. Well, in the first century, the best seats were not in the back. They were in the front, and they were in the front facing the congregation so that everybody could see them, and they had the opportunity to speak to the congregation. And so these men not only wanted a claim in the marketplaces, they wanted the best seats in church. And the same was true of outside events, feasts and banquets that were given. They were invited, and their very presence was an honor to the host, and therefore they expected the best seats at these events. You've had the experience of attending a wedding reception, maybe getting there just a tad late, having difficulty finding a seat. Looking all around, all the tables seem fairly full, but there's a few tables over here where no one's sitting. You think, well, I'll go sit over there. And so you walk over there to one of those tables, and you're about to sit down, and you see that placard in the middle of the table, reserved. And you look at the next two or three tables, they're all reserved. And while you understand what they're reserved for, you know they're reserved for the wedding party, and they're just not there yet, it still doesn't sit quite well with you because now you've got to go in the back where, where you can't see anything or know what's going on and find a seat with people maybe you don't like or don't know. 
So you understand, and yet you feel like you're sort of left out. These men never experienced that. Everywhere they went, they were at the reserve table. Every event they participated in, they were the men who were honored. The devouring of the widow's houses is a little more difficult to exactly understand what it's referring to. We do know that the priests in that day did not receive a a land inheritance. The tribe of Levi did not have that. And therefore, they had to rely on the generosity of others, their gifts for their pay. We also know that these men would advise people as far as their financial planning goes. So it seems to refer either to taking their money directly, that is the possibility that these scribes were going into the homes of widows and convincing them to give them their money for their religious use, or indirectly encouraging them to give it all to the temple where the scribes would also be benefiting from it. I mean, this is greed, pure and simple. In fact, there was one commentary I was reading this week in preparation for this, and it kept using a word that that I wasn't familiar with. The word is rapicity. I don't even know if I'm saying that correctly or not, but I finally had to look it up to see what they were talking about. And it's a word that means aggressive greed. The word greed apparently wasn't even good enough to describe what these scribes were doing. They had to use another word that meant aggressive greed. As I said, we continue to see this regularly in our own world, both secular and religious. We are bombarded with scams, many of them targeting the elderly, trying to swindle them out of their life savings. And more times than it ought to, it works, often because these widows are kind and loving and trusting, and sometimes because perhaps they might be slipping mentally uh, just a little bit. But even worse is when it happens in the name of God or religion. Television preachers who beg for money so they can fund their lavish lifestyles or their multiple jets preying on lonely believers who believe they are helping spread the gospel when in reality they are only fueling the greed of another huckster. They appear to be sincere and serious, making long prayers to impress those who are listening. Again, I'm sure you've had the experience of listening to someone pray, and about halfway through their prayer, you begin to think to yourself, are they praying to God or to us? I mean, are they really talking to God or are they saying things for our benefit, trying to convince us to do something or other. These religious leaders knew the right words to say that would impress their audience. They knew how to come across as super spiritual, but they were not all that they seemed to be. And that is why Jesus says, beware of them, which is still a necessary call to heed. I was visiting somebody this past Monday on Labor Day. And just so happens that the Braves game was on, and I knew they always watched the Braves game, so I was watching the Braves game with them. And so I asked the question, what do you watch when the Braves aren't on? And his answer was multiple things, you know, the news occasionally, weather, and then he said, and then I like this particular preacher. And I was like, really? You like him? He said, he's very popular. He's got a very large church. And I said, you know, being popular and having a large church does not mean that you're necessarily preaching the truth. And I left it at that because I knew I was beginning to irritate him with my answer. But just because someone is 
using the name of God and opening a Bible does not mean that they are serious or sincere. That is why we must continue to discern and beware of the greedy. Majority rule is not a good way to judge the credibility of a preacher. These scribes were the celebrity pastors of their, of their day. And it is a t- continuing temptation today, wanting to be praised and prominent. That's not just something that kids deal with in middle school and high school. It is something that adults continue to deal with, perhaps in even greater regularity these days through social media. We're constantly wanting likes and following and all of this. Beware of those who are driven by pride, and while we're at it, we need to beware that we don't become one of them. These men who would have known the Scriptures, their knowledge of the Word of God was above the average, to say the least, and this knowledge of the Scriptures should have driven them to a greater devotion to God and to His glory, but instead they wanted the glory for themselves. And as a result, Jesus is very clear, they will not only be judged, they will receive a greater judgment. James says the same thing in his little letter, beware that you become a teacher. Not many should be teachers, he says, because you will be held to a higher standard. We need discernment in the Christian church to know the difference between true servants of God and those who are only serving themselves. And I acknowledge that this is indeed a hard distinction, but the Bible repeatedly warns us that there will be some who come in the name of God whose real goal is their own fame. So believe the logic. Jesus is the Son of God. Secondly, beware the prideful. Our third section could not be any more different than the one we've just looked at. As he closes his public ministry, we're introduced to someone who is the exact opposite of these scribes. So from beware of the prideful, we move to behold the generous. Now it might strike you as odd that we move from a warning about being greedy to an episode about giving. Frankly, the Bible has a lot to say about money. The Bible has an awful lot to say about our use of finances and resources, and frankly, we don't want to hear it. We don't want anybody telling us what to do with our money, and anybody includes God. In fact, even saying it's our money tells us we have a problem from the very start, because we are stewards of God's resources. We are stewards of what He has given us. And so when we say, nobody can tell me what I I can do with my money, we're already heading down the wrong track. But we believe money is so personal that nobody has a right to say anything about it, including God. Jesus is now beginning to move out of the temple. We know that because these offering boxes that are mentioned were in the outer court, the court of women. This is the court where women and children were allowed to come in and worship. So he's moved from the inner courts of the temple, and he's making his way out of the temple. But before he gets out of the temple area, he stops in this court of women, and he watches. Jesus is people-watching, something some of us like to do. But when we do it, we tend to do it, let's say, at the beach or maybe at the mall We don't really do it at church, especially during the offering. 
We don't want people watching us when the offering plate is passed, trying to see what we may or may not put in, and therefore we don't watch others. It's totally uncomfortable for us. But again, this is Jesus, who is Lord of the temple and Lord over all things. And so there would have been 13 trumpet-like receptacles. They were shaped like trumpets, large opening leading to a smaller bottom, and they were positioned around the walls of this court. So, so picture that. They were all over the sanctuary. Instead of, instead of us plas- passing a plate and asking you to put something in it, we would have these receptacles posted all around our sanctuary. And there would be so many because they were for different things. They had designated offerings just like we do. So we'd have a couple throughout the sanctuary that were just for the general offering. We'd have one over here for future needs. There's faith promise missions over here. We would certainly have our mission offerings that come about throughout the year in various locations. We'd have one for Lottie and one for Annie. And in fact, we're in the season right now for the state missions offering. And so rather than waiting for an opportunity in the service for a plate to pass, as you're milling around the court of women, you could deposit your offering in one of these trumpet-shaped receptacles whenever you were ready. And because of what they were made of, it was pretty easy for you to hear how much someone might be putting in there. So we've got all of these receptacles. We might even put one up that just says, Pastor's Supplement. I mean, if you wanted to just add to, to what comes to me, you could put it in there. Now I'm sort of sounding like that greedy scribe, right, instead of this generous widow. And so the people are coming and going, and the rich are putting a lot of money into these money boxes. And Jesus knows what they're putting in because, well, Jesus knows. And in contrast to them, we are introduced to an unnamed woman whose act of devotion and piety has her remembered for all of history. We call it the widow's might. And you say, well, why would we call it that? Because might, M-I-T-E, is the word that the King James uses. Uh, my translation uses different words, but we know it by that, that old terminology. And so everything is against her. She is poor. She is a widow, the very ones that we've just said the scribes were devouring. And she is a woman. And this combination in that culture would have made her the least of the least. But here she is with her gift two small coins. Mark actually translates the value into Roman currency so his Roman audience will understand how much is given. The two small coins combined were equivalent to one-sixty-fourth of a denarius. Now, a denarius, as we've seen in sermons past, was equivalent to a day's wage. The average person would make one denarius every day. So these two small coins are equal to one sixty-fourth of that. So basically, this woman is given virtually nothing. There is almost no purchasing power whatsoever in what she has dropped in the money box. I suppose because I was working on this sermon this week, I noticed these things when maybe I wouldn't have otherwise. But at least twice this week, I saw a penny on the ground as I was going about my daily life. And you know what I did both times? Nothing. I was too lazy to even bend over and pick up a penny. I thought, why should I do that? It's worth nothing. 
Even had I bent over and picked them up, I would have taken them home and put them in the piggy bank that I have in my office at home, and there they would have stayed for who knows how long. But I didn't even bother to do that because it's worth nothing. And that's what this woman is putting into the money box. So in terms of financial giving, she's giving virtually nothing. And yet, Jesus sees things much differently. He calls the disciples over and gives them a lesson on stewardship. He says, this woman has contributed more than everybody else combined. All of those rich people who are giving large sums, she has outgiven them all. Well, how is that possible? Because it's clearly not true financially. And so Jesus explains what he means. She, in her poverty, gave all that she had. The others, in their abundance, gave what they would never miss. She sacrificed, they gave out of their comfort. And so Jesus commends her attitude and her action combined together. You remember last week we looked at one of those great questions, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered that question by saying, the greatest commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and therefore you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he went on from there, and he said, and I'll tell you a second one, love your neighbor as yourself. In these two commands is is all of the law. Jesus sums up all of the law in love God with everything you are and demonstrate your love for God by loving others. And that's exactly what this woman is doing here. She is sacrificing and giving all that she has in order to show her love for God. The rich are doing neither. We tend to fall in the same trap, only measuring a gift with a calculator. That is only figuring out what the amount was that was given. But Jesus measures by the sacrifice involved and by what's left over. Now again, like our story of the rich young ruler that we looked at some time ago, this is not teaching us that we all must give away everything that we have. Consistently in Scripture, we are confronted with giving to God as a matter of generosity. That is, we are to be generous in our giving because God has given much to us. And when we understand how God has poured out His blessings on us, beginning, of course, with salvation and including many other things, then we, in response, are to give generously and graciously to His work, His ministry, so that it can be funded. Now, those of you who come here regularly know that I really do not like to talk about money. But the fact of the matter is that ministry does take money. Jesus had a treasurer in His little group. Among his disciples was a treasurer who kept the money for their ministry. Now, I realize that didn't work out so well for him, but he nevertheless did indeed have a treasure. So where there is ministry and money, there might also be pride, and that's going to result at times in abuse, both then and now, but we cannot let the abuses of prideful people take away our generosity or let it be an excuse for the withholding of what God desires. Here again, we need discernment. Discernment to trust God that He's going to judge those who misuse His resources, but ultimately, each of us should give generously to the work of the kingdom. Not out of guilt, nor out of manipulation, 
but out of the joy of our salvation and the desire for others to experience that same joy and knowing that the spread of the gospel does indeed take resources. But there is more to this woman than all of this. She is a beautiful picture of two things. First, she is a picture of discipleship. Remember, Jesus began by calling His initial disciples way back in the early chapters of Mark's gospel simply by saying, follow me. And then we saw the disciples' response. They left everything and followed Him. And this woman is doing that exact same thing. She is giving everything she has in faithful trust to God that God is going to meet her needs in response. And isn't that a portrait of following Christ? Isn't that a portrait of loving God and others? But there is a second thing she pictures. She points forward to what we are about to get into, the passion narratives, the giving of Christ for us. This woman gave all of her livelihood Jesus is about to give his life. So her story is a fitting transition to the passion narratives and a constant reminder of the gospel. So I am asking you this morning, what are you giving? And in asking that, I am not primarily talking about money or finances. I am first and foremost talking about faith. Have you given your life to Christ Believing that He is indeed not merely the Son of David, but He is the Son of God. You've believed the logic that Scripture points forward to this Christ, and Christ is the fulfillment of all of those Scriptures, and therefore your response is placing your faith and trust in Him. But then secondly, I am asking about your finances. Not a specific number, nor even a specific percentage. When we truly realize that all God has done for us in Christ, it should make a difference in how we invest and spend our money. I used to be able to say your checkbook is a good indicator of your spiritual life, but most of us don't look at our checkbooks anymore. So your online banking screen is a good indicator of your spiritual life. It is not just a money issue, but it says what is a priority in your life and where your heart is. That's why your finances are not just about money. They are about your spiritual life. So are you greedy like these scribes? Or are you generous like this unnamed woman whose one act of devotion has been included in the Word of God and seen as a model for all these years. Let's pray.